Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This week's episode is supported by Wick Realty. I recorded every interview over the past year, except for the live show, in my home studio. My family and I love our house, we love our neighborhood, and we're here because Wick Realty helped us sell our previous home and buy this one. Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying or selling, if you're building, if you're looking for investment property, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Sims Architects online at sims-architects.com, to Hollow Dot Designs online at hollow.designs.com and to the law office of Cynthia Barella Graham, who's online at cynthiabarellagram.com. You can read the latest issue of Brick and Elm, the one with the cool-looking bird on the cover, at brickandelm.com or, of course, pick one up in local stores. Today's guest is Andrew Brandt. Andrew is a local business owner and an award-winning author. He's a WT grad who has written several novels, including the thriller Paladuro and his latest release, Picture Unavailable. But Andrew is also one of the owners of PhoneMedic, which is a smartphone, tablet, and computer repair business that has locations in Amarillo, Canyon, and Lubbock. And so those are two very different careers. And I wanted to hear how he managed to do all those things and why this native of Vernon, Texas, has chosen to do them here in Amarillo. So this is a fun one. Here's Andrew Brandt. Andrew Brandt, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me back on the show. Yeah, that's right. So you've actually been on the show before. Um, I did a, like, early first year of the show, I did a thing where I invited a lot of people to just record the eight straight parts uh, without a whole bunch of context, and you were one of those people I remember your answers were great. And then in the years since, I've thought, man, I, I need to have Andrew back on the show like for a full interview because he's an interesting person. But then it felt too close to that eight straight things. And so now 250 episodes past it, I feel like we're okay. Right. Yeah, we've gone um, into not solicitation. Goodness, what's the English word for whenever a television show is? Yes, syndication? Yes, syndication. Okay, that's what it is. It's a syndication Now that we're in the syndication, we yeah, can come back exactly. for reruns. Everybody's forgotten it. Nobody listened <laughs> uh, that first ep- first year anyway. Um, so let's do a full interview, and I want to start with you the same way I start with all my guests, and that's to ask, like, how did you end up in the Amarillo area in the first place? I'm originally from Vernon, Texas, and I went to West Texas A&M. I was looking at different universities, and I decided that uh, University of New Mexico, which I was enamored with for so long, my entire like high school career, I wanted to be a Lobo until we got to Albuquerque. And I told my dad, no, I'm not <laughs> coming to school here. And so I found West Texas A&M just happenstance. I don't even remember how it was never on my radar. I was gonna say Vernon is closer to like Midwestern right. in Wichita Falls or some other right. schools. Yeah, so we were looking at like Midwestern, UNT. I knew I didn't want to go to Midwestern because it was too close to home. Okay. Right. But then like Albuquerque was too far. And ended up finding this really nice Division II school three hours from home. I felt like I was I was far enough away where I could have some fun, but close enough where I could still afford gas to get home on the weekends. Okay. Right. So uh, I started out as a music major in 2004, and I did a year and a half of music education and decided my sophomore year I no longer wanted to be a music teacher. 
I decided instead I wanted to go to law school. Okay, that's probably a pretty common transition. A very common. Music to law. Be- music to law, yes. So I went to Dr. Calvi at West Texas A&M at the pre-law department who accepted me into their pre-law program, signed me up for 15 hours of law, and I failed every single class. <laughs> so uh, from that point on, I started taking a bunch of history classes to raise my GPA. And about four and a half years into that, you know, I'm, I'm 24 years old. I'm six years into my education. They're like, all right, buddy, let's, here's your general studies degree. Okay. Let's get you out of here. You abandoned the music part of the career. You never really got started on the law part. Like, did you know what you wanted to do when you graduated? I had no clue. I had no clue. I worked construction, like hard hat tool belt, all through college. Uh, I thought I was going to be in maybe construction project management out of college. Okay. I, I did land a desk job. Whenever I got out of college, I was a project engineer for a low-voltage company that were doing fire alarm okay. in like hotels and things like that, and hated it. I mean, loved the technical aspect of the job, hated that my only human interaction was yelling at general contractors on the phone. Yeah. Right? So it was not too long after that. I, I did know that my one marketable skill, aside from like playing music, was... Uh, computers. I, hmm. I was a computer nerd growing up. I built my own computers. And so I just started like fixing computers for my friends and family and found out pretty soon that people would pay me to do it. I was 24 years old, 25 maybe. Yeah, I was 25 when I walked into my boss's office and I said, I hate you and I hate this job and this is my last day and started the computer business out of my garage after really? that. What what was the time frame for that? Like 2000... 2012. 12? Okay. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of people who really got into computers, you know, it, it was more that pirate stage, you know, like in the 90s. Right. You know, when desktop computers were first becoming a thing, people were first getting familiar with them. 2012, like... Computers were pretty common. Right. You know, Best Buy had Geek Squad and stuff like that. So... Did you see a market for just like an individual saying, hey, I'll, I'll come fix your thing? I did. Uh, and it ended up being quite a surprise to myself. I did not know that I would have you know the customer base that I had. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that I could make a living driving around Amarillo, Texas, fixing computers. Uh, at the time, my overhead was so low. It was just me. Mm-hmm. I, I could fix you know two or three a day and be done. Uh, even to this day now that we've got, and we'll get into it, I'm sure, like three different phone medic locations now. We're doing phone repair and computer repair. We've got, you know, uh, half a dozen guys, you know, on staff now that I do sometimes miss the days where I could work on a computer or two and then shut off the lights and go home yeah. and watch Sports Center. What, what were you fixing? What kinds of problems? Gosh, uh, a lot of computer viruses, hardware problems, you know, spinning disk drives. You, mm-hmm. we, we could get into all of the technical things. Mostly PCs or Mostly PCs and Macs? PCs, Macs, laptops, okay. um, more PCs, definitely. And it has been really fun to see the transition away from like the desktop and laptop computer. And now everyone just works on a phone or even an iPad. So at what point, you, you mentioned phone medic and, and having employees and all that kind of thing. At what point did you think, okay, this needs to be more than just you know, you making house calls, occasionally watching Sports Center, uh, to, to kind of formalize it a little bit more. You know, I wish I could say that there was some grand plan, but there really wasn't. It was in 2016 that I met my now business partner, Gabe Morgan, at Phone Medic of Amarillo. And he was running Phone Medic, and I was doing this computer thing. I was in this small office building, uh, didn't really have a retail space, 
And Phone Medic had this retail space. And, and I went to him one day and I said, hey, I've got this crazy idea. You fix phones and I fix computers. So why don't we combine and do both under one roof, mm-hmm. right? I can sublease space from you uh, and I can do computers here and you do phones and we can like pass business back and forth. And so it was, it was this almost handshake deal yeah. um, where I got, you know, again, I was, I was canceling out or getting out of a lease from this little office building and then going to phone medic. And, and so we operated independently phone medic and all-star computers for, for two years there. Yeah. And that was just a single location, just, just phone a single medic location. Yeah. Just the one over at 34th in Georgia, which no longer exists. Yeah. It burned down in 2020 among everything else that happened <laughs> that year. Yeah. So that was, you know, a, just a, a handshake deal, uh, kind of mutually beneficial because a lot of people that, get a computer worked on or the same people who are going to come to you again for a phone or something like right. that, or at least come to the same place. Uh, so tell me like how you started to think about that business and, and maybe taking it further. Yeah. So in 2018, one of the partners at phone medic decided he no longer wanted to be uh, part of the business. He was moving off to, I think Colorado. And he asked me if I wanted to buy him out. And at the time I was honestly, I had just gotten married Jennifer and I had, gotten married in March of 2018. And so this was May of 2018. And I thought about it hard because when we got married, I thought I might just go back to the garage again. You know, my son, my, my lease was coming up where I was at, at phone medic and it's like, man, you know, I can, I could go back to just working out of a garage and have no overhead again. And, but then I decided, uh, there is more growth in this. So yeah, I am interested, uh, did that, bought out, uh, his name was Nick. And so Gabe and I can combined then at that point, phone medic and all-star computer, we folded all the computer surfaces into the phone medic banner and operated it as one entity from that point, one LLC. Did you see a steady enough clientele to make you think, okay, now, now it's time to think about expanding out of this single location? Because I know you've got multiple locations now. You right. mentioned multiple employees. You know, how, how did you start to think about the growth? Very early on, Gabe and I were, were very interested in opening multiple locations. Um, it's, it's, it's a money game at that point. It's mathematics. Mm-hmm. If you're doing X amount of dollars here and X amount of dollars here, you know, you can grow these uh, to where you're having multiple locations and have multiple streams of income at that point. It was almost kind of a pipe dream, though. I mean, I won't say that we had just this solid game plan down until... 2020. So we've been working together for four years at this point Mm -hmm. until we finally found this space on the square in in Canyon, um, fell in love with it right on the, right across from the courthouse and said, this is the perfect space for a second location. I always wanted to go back to Canyon. That city has a special place in my heart. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of life on the square, a lot of life on the square. That building is beautiful that we're in. Um, love seeing all the commotion around the square. But it was, it was a huge jump to say like, you know, we can, if, if everything goes to hell, we can run this, Mm -hmm. right. This Amarillo store together. If everything still goes to hell, I can run one store and you can run one store. We'll, we'll run ragged, Mm -hmm. but we can do this. And then this year opening Lubbock, uh, 110 miles away, moving our store manager down to Lubbock. He is now, his name is Dalen and Dalen is fantastic. And he's running this store essentially by himself okay. with, with some help from us for sure. 
um, but he's, he's, he's shouldered this. And I'll get to talk with you about this in a bit about Marcus Aurelius and his, and his marble shoulders mm-hmm. and the weight of running a business like that. Yeah. Tell me how you plan for that business, because I'm thinking just of computer repair or phone repair, you know, as a business model. Yes, obviously those things break down and people need help. You know, every person our age is doing tech support for our parents at this point. Right. How do you model things like revenue and figuring out if you're going to be able to pay the bills? Because you're ultimately just waiting for things to go wrong. And, you know, things could go wrong or maybe the computers get better and they're easier. And, and I mean, how do you think about your business at a time when technology keeps improving, reliability keeps improving, all those things are affecting the work that you do? Luckily, the biggest thing is this device is still made of glass. Okay. And glass is a wonderful breakable product. The phone. The phone. Uh, as far as computers go, Microsoft is a fantastic company for keeping you in business. Okay. Right? Their operating system is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. But there are so many bugs, so many issues for so many different people that, yeah, there's there's always a customer base. The, uh, they, they sort of build in obsolete hardware, I guess, to there, the model. You're, you're always upgrading it and something's always going to There's break. some of that. Uh, you know, one of the main things we do these days is a lot of data recovery. Hmm over at phone medic and because it's no longer photo albums, physical albums that we, you know, our parents used to have that we had when we were younger, everything that you remember and want to remember is stored electronically on this device. Mm-hmm. And so if it goes for a swim at Lake Meredith and you haven't backed it up, you, you need help there. Yeah. Right. So that's what, that's what we do. We do a ton of data recovery, forensics, data recovery, Hard, hard drive failures where there's, you know, tons of pictures or documents on a hard drive. We can crack open and get that data back. We do a lot of that, too. Who are your customers? I mean, I'm, I'm noticing that you have a place in Canyon where WT is located. Now you have a place in Lubbock where Texas Tech. I mean, it, it, are college students among those customers or is it just everybody? Somewhat. You know, we we purposely did not go in close to Texas Tech. Okay. We wanted to be where... In a part of Lubbock, 82nd Street, uh, where families are. Okay. Right. So there are college students who are our customer base. Don't get me wrong. Uh, our customer base is generally uh, young adults, middle-aged adults, people with kids, uh, people who hand their teenagers these devices that are made of glass again. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask just ab- about this side of your business is that it relies on you or at least your team being experts in a technology mm-hmm. that changes Constantly. many times a year. Right. You know, every time a new iOS comes out, every time a new model comes out, every time a new laptop comes out, you've got to be able to find your way around that in order to fix it. So how do you maintain that that knowledge base? A lot of hands-on, a lot of getting new devices and tearing them down. A lot of YouTube videos, mm-hmm. a lot of technical specs, understanding from which angle or side of the device that the screen comes off of to replace. Okay. Um, different screens come up from the top, some come from the left side, some come from the right side. So knowing where that is and being able to, as you said, stay on top of that technology as it releases almost annually at this point. Yeah. Right. So. Tell me also about opening in Lubbock because, you know, the transition from Amarillo to Canyon is a pretty easy one. You probably had Canyon residents who either knew of you or were your customers, you know, when, when you were just in Amarillo. So that's less of a stretch, but in Lubbock, you're 
a new name, a new brand. We're nobody in Lubbock. Yeah. yeah. So how how does that work, and how do you get the attention or the customer base there? Man, on a prayer, but I will say that opening Canyon, you know, opening that store in Canyon, still close to Amarillo, but still having to do all the marketing and promotion of saying we are here, we are open. Like there's no reason to drive the 15 miles into Amarillo to visit one of the stores. We are now here. A lot of flyering, a lot of social media posts, a lot of um, targeted marketing through Facebook or Instagram marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we do a lot of that. Yeah. So being able to, luckily, uh, my business partner, Gabe Morgan, is an incredible salesman, an incredible marketer himself. But to be able to go into a market like this and say, we are starting from zero. So our potential then is... There's no, there's no limit to it. Yeah. Right. It, it's only going to work as hard as we do. The, the potential is high. The floor starts really, really, really low. low. Right. Okay. So one of the interesting things about you is that you've got this, this very, uh, I would say sort of a left brained job, although that division is, is kind of debunked at this point, but it's, you have a very technical job. You're repairing computers. Uh, it's really hands-on. And then you've got this other side of your career because you're also an author, you're writing novels, in my mind, those two things don't always go together. Right. Um, and I wonder if you could kind of talk me through how you figured out that they went together in your brain and, <laughs> and, and ended up at the point where you're like, I, I want to tell this story. Yeah. Uh, well, they don't. Okay. <laughs> they are very separate. Yes. Uh, I, I will say that. So in 2020, again, with everything else that was going on in 2020, uh, a pandemic, uh, a fire burned down our, 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 our one business at the mm-hmm. time. And I had a baby. Okay. And so when Ellie was born, I did take the purposeful step of backing away from full-time operations at Phone Medic. Uh, Gabe took over basically day-to-day operations. Uh, I handled finances, accounting, HR, inventory, that kind of thing now. Uh, I'm not guts deep into phones or computers anymore. But that's still a very administrative sort of role. Right. With a baby in hand, right? Uh, that did free up some time where I could really focus on the things that I, I really wanted to do with my life, which was I wanted to be a novelist. And I have for when I was very young, even being in college and like getting a degree in general studies and studying history at WT, I, I learned that a history degree is really just a writing degree. Okay. Right. It's just a lot of research and writing. So I've always loved writing. Uh, I grew up in a library. Uh, my parents split when I was really young, and I spent a lot of time at the public library. Okay. In Vernon. In Vernon. Yeah. Basically, my my dad worked at this trophy shop. Uh, he built trophies. He owned this trophy shop. He inherited it from his father. And so he was busy. I mean, he was he was running his own business and trying to keep a roof over our heads and trying to keep this precocious little boy from killing himself as, mm-hmm. you know, kids are kind of crazy but uh you're tearing apart computers and stuff right right, you know and and so what what would happen though is i'd get out of school and drop my stuff off and i'd walk the two blocks to the city library i didn't have video games i couldn't afford them so if there was anything i was interested in i found out pretty easily that i could find this stuff at the library star wars or ghosts or goblins or anything that piqued my interest as a serial obsessive almost and the librarians at the city library in Vernon didn't seem to mind this feral eight-year-old boy coming by every yeah. day to check out books. And they taught me how to use the card catalog, and they taught me how to find the books I was looking for. 
to use interlibrary loan for the books they didn't have in okay. stock. That's a that's another step then for they, a kid. So they treated me like they would treat any other reader. Yeah. Right? They treated me with respect. And I wasn't used to being treated with respect at eight years old. But it wasn't before long until I realized that I like these books and I like stories and I want to write my own as well. So, of course, I tried. You know, I tried writing my own Goosebumps books at 10 years old and mm-hmm. failed. Um, so it's always been a passion. Absolutely. What was the first book? It was called The Treehouse. That you wrote and finished, I finished, guess. Finished, yes. I finished a book called The Treehouse in 2018. You say that cavalierly, but, you know, as a writer myself, I hear from people all the time who say, yeah, I'm writing a book. And I never hear that they finished it. Right. Because writing a book is hard, hard work. I, I'll tell you, and I'll tell the, the listeners, it's 3%. Yeah. It's 3% of people who say they, or, or start a novel, 3% finish. Right. So you finished, though. And to me, like that's that's the biggest hurdle is actually having an idea, sitting down to work on the idea, and then seeing it through. So what can you tell me about why you were able to do that, to, to have the drive to actually complete a project like that? I will say that I learned a process um, just from reading, uh, writing books. I will say that the book Save the Cat, which is a, yeah. a Blake Snyder screenwriting book, completely changed how I look at storytelling. It's all about plotting the different kinds of stories. Correct. The different points, you know, that some of those stories are going to hit. And so by applying myself to a process, creativity came out, Mm -hmm. right? I didn't have to shove my own thoughts into something else. You know, I I applied myself to a specific process and and writing came out. And that's what I would suggest to any, any aspiring writer who's listening to this show is, is, is learn a process. Don't just sit down whenever you feel inspired. And I'm saying inspired with quotation marks here. Uh, it's it understand that it is a process that it requires dedication whether you feel like writing that day or not mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about once you finished that first manuscript or once you thought okay i have written a book there's a lot of options now for people for writers um who want to get their work out into the world you know you can go the traditional publishing route where you get an agent you get a publisher it ends up on barnes and noble uh, shelves you can self-publish to a place like Amazon and Kindle. Like, what were you thinking after you wrote that first book and probably started thinking about the next one? Mm-hmm. Did you think, okay, I've, I've done this thing. How do I find people to read it? That was definitely it. Almost uh, ignorantly so. Uh, I, I was too quick, I think, to release that first one. I think it was Emerson. I might be mistaken that said the first draft of anything is crap, mm-hmm. right? And and I wish I would have slowed down a little bit. After finishing that first book, I was just so excited to to have one done. I wanted people to read it immediately, not really understanding that I did not have the chops just quite yet, the storytelling chops, the writing chops of saying, this is worth your time. Mm-hmm. But like anything, you know, it takes, it takes repetitions to get better. So that first one, I looked into self-publishing on Amazon. I was really interested in the 70% royalty rate. It's yeah, right? a great rate. I love getting 70 cents per dollar. Sold so, as opposed to maybe eight percent if you maybe, went the traditional route, right? If you have a good agent, right? But you know there is also as a self-published author, you are then running a small business. Mm-hmm. Luckily, it's something I'm well versed in to be able to hire somebody for cover design and editors. And at that point, you are delegating tasks. And all that to say is yes, you know I, I did self-publish those first few books. Um, and got better, I would hope to say, with each one. You know, um, I released a, two books a year for a little while, uh, one in the spring and one in the fall. That's that's an incredible pace. Should I mean, have slowed pe- down. People 
maybe think, well, yeah, Stephen King does that too. But that's a really fast pace. He's been doing it for 40 years. He has, yeah. And should have slowed down. If I had known everything I know now in hindsight, uh, had I listened to Seneca, who talks about you know, learning from the mistakes of others, I would have not published those first few books. I would probably waited until I felt like my best work was coming out of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a model you see pretty often too. You know, somebody hits it big and they explode onto the scene as a novelist and then you find out, well, that's actually their fifth novel. Right. You know, they... Tried to publish three or four others under somebody else's name. You know, Stephen yeah. King was Richard Bachman yeah. all throughout the 70s. Nobody knew Dan Brown until yeah, The yeah. Da Vinci Code came out, and he had three other novels before that. Exactly. Uh, so tell me how you think about your career right now. Um, how many how many novels do you have out in the world? Six. I've written six books over the last six years. Okay. I did end up slowing down a little bit here towards the end to where I'm putting out a book a year. It did take... See, Mixtape for the End of the World came out in May of 21. Picture Unavailable came out in October of 22. So those do sound like a year apart, but they were a year and a half apart. Okay. Right? One at the beginning of, the, of, of one year, the end of the next year. And you're working on another one now? I am, yes. Uh, I hope to have it out maybe end of this year, first of next year. Uh, I, I, I get to be independent again, which okay. um, for some people is not the greatest thing for them. They want to be able to have the certain aspects of publishing into someone else's hands. They just want to write. Uh, my friend Rick Trion is that way. He just wants to write books sure. and have someone else do editing and cover design. I enjoy it. I love it. And and I get to interact one-to-one with my audience. You know, being five, six years into this project now, call it a project, uh, I, I do have a really nice audience who mm. who I can depend on, yeah. And that's similar to some people want to work for a corporation and get the steady paycheck. And um, and that's satisfying. There are benefits there. And some people want to be entrepreneurs and take bigger risks and be in control of everything. So, I mean, that makes sense that, that you have that mindset as an entrepreneur. I think, too, uh, given, like, I, I want to say this lightly, like Fifty Shades of Grey being the huge hit that it was, mm-hmm. was originally self-published. Yeah. Andy Weir's The Martian, which is a much better novel, uh, was also started out as a self-published novel. And the self-published version was not as good as some of his su- subsequent ones. I right. Mean, like, you can see how his writing has changed. Right. And having an editor. and, and But all that to say is the, the red tape has been cut mm-hmm. um, in this industry. Readers who have a Kindle who are just getting books off of Kindle Unlimited or on their Nook from Barnes & Noble don't care if Penguin Random House put it out. Exactly. Right? They just want to read good stories. And so if you can provide that and provide them professionally done, uh, it doesn't matter. They will read them. How do you divide your time now? Again, I have a now three-year-old. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my time is spent running around. I, I wish I wore my Apple Watch today. I'd show you the activity, right? <laughs> no. Um, I, I start my days early. Uh, Marcus Aurelius tells us in meditations that you, you, you get up early, you attack the day. Uh, and that's what I do. I like to I like to say I get up at six. I wake up at six. I'm in bed for twenty minutes until right you know, you until we get until we get going. Yeah, but um, uh, I do. My my daughter does wake up around seven seven fifteen. So I usually have about an hour, you know, in the morning, where I will um, I'll, I'll read. Oh, right now I'm reading meditations again. Um, I'll journal. I will check my email newsletter for the day. Make sure that it went out. That it 
didn't bounce, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. When I am drafting, I'm not right now, I'm in edits, but whenever I am drafting, I'll sit down to write a thousand words. And sometimes that'll take 40 minutes. You know, the words will just flow. Sometimes it'll take two, two and a half hours. I'll take some phone calls in the afternoon with the business, uh, with phone medic. I might go into the office in the afternoon to check on something, some things. That's that's about it. Uh, my my daughter and I, while my spouse, who's a an educator, uh, while she's in school, and we were on a pretty rigid schedule. We're, okay. at, we're at the library this day. We're at the park this day. We're here this day, right? So it's keeping a schedule with the toddler is, is paramount and tantamount for, for for keeping them happy. When you introduce yourself to people and they say, hey, what do you do? Do you tell them that you write books or do you tell them that you uh, own a computer repair business? I say I chase a three-year-old. Okay, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's the priority position. I, I do a lot of things. Uh, I primarily am uh, the dad to the most beautiful little girl on the planet, yeah. Okay, so the last thing I wanted to ask you, and this is about your writing, and being in a place like Amarillo, which has a pretty robust writing community. We have some legit best-selling novelists who live here, Jody Thomas and, and folks like that. Taylor, Taylor Moore, Taylor Moore. Um, has made a huge splash the last few years uh, and more to come from him. But what what can you tell me about being a novelist here in Amarillo within this creative community and, and maybe the support that you see not just people buying your books, but also supporting the work that you do as a storyteller. I had become pretty disillusioned coming into this most recent book. And in fact, I did step away from being an author for a while. It didn't mean I stopped writing. I just stopped promoting. I found out that I was chasing attention and fame Mm -hmm. more than I was just pursuing my own creative creativity. I will say that when Picture Unavailable came out in October, we had the book release at Ponticetta. And I love the guys over there. Uh, Caleb and his guys are just absolute sweethearts. Love them to death. And they hosted my book release party. And I had a friend of mine ask me, how many people do you think will show up? I said, I hope five. Right? I, I consider that a success. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had 100 people in this wow. brewery. We had everyone in, outside and and. You know, on the inside of the brew and out on the picnic tables they have there, and they were lined up to buy books and, and to get pictures and autographs. And I just, I felt really for the first time that, not to say anything about the writing community itself, but just for me personally, that I had stuck with it and I think I was getting some traction. I felt that traction a little bit with Palo Duro coming out in 2020. It was scheduled for May of 2020. Great time to release a book. Perfect time. Right. And I even thought about like, oh, do we, do we push this off for two weeks and let this pandemic? People needed stuff to read. They were stuck (laughs) at home, right? So yeah, we ended up, we did end up, but I didn't get to tour it at the time. And so all that to say, a long winded answer to that question is there is incredible support for the writing community here. Um, You are seeing, like you said, from guys like Taylor Moore who are doing big things. Uh, Rick Trion, a friend of mine, who's doing incredible things Mm -hmm. with small press and and independent stuff as well. This episode of Hamarello is supported by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist since I was in college. He's taken care of my kids' teeth ever since their adult teeth showed up. Dr. Sauer is a national speaker on Invisalign and uses that technology to improve his patient's smiles and positioning. 
And he's done that, of course, for members of my family. We were really satisfied with the Invisalign approach, especially compared to metal braces. And so I heartily recommend it. Learn more by following Shim and Dental on Facebook or visit shimanddental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N. Okay, I'm back with Andrew Brandt. Andrew, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus. I know you're probably familiar with it. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes a fossilized tusk from a woolly mammoth discovered in Potter County. And this ancestor of the elephant would have stood 14 feet high at the shoulder, and they lived here uh, in the Texas Panhandle at one point, which is fun to think about. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org and go inside the museum. You can see that tusk. Okay, when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? I thought about this question coming over, and I hope that the looming culture war between Amarillo ISD and Canyon ISD is not as dirty as it might become. Okay. The more the city grows and it's growing south, and the more schools that the Canyon ISD is building, it's going to mean fewer and fewer tax dollars towards Amarillo ISD. That's true. As the uh, proud husband of an educator, I hope that there can be some kind of reconciliation there before it gets too dirty. Yeah. It is complicated uh, because Canyon voters passed a bond issue that resulted in some new schools, really nice new buildings. Those campuses are great. And Amarillo voters voted down, voted bonds. against a bond yeah. issue. And so the schools are not as nice as some of those Canyon ones. And like you said, they're, we're locked in yep. at this point. All the growth, you know, is growing into the Canyon district. Now, I mean, I will say uh, as someone who came up in Amarillo in the construction industry, uh, I will always vote for new construction. Absolutely. Every time. Yeah. Every time. It's not just good for the people using the schools. Right. Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? It has too much empty space. Uh, it has too much empty space. I would love to see bigger, beautiful trees in in like John Stiff, driving over here from John Stiff and just see this big empty field, right? That I would love to see more trails or something built over mm-hmm. there. It doesn't have enough walkable or bikeable trails on main roads. Yeah. I, I drive down 34th and it just pains me to see that there are people that are walking and they're walking on the curb or they're trying to stay out of traffic. Yeah. And not always sidewalks there. Not always sidewalks Definitely not there. bike lanes. Right. Um, I think we, talking about construction and the things that we use, uh, have to understand that not everything that we vote on is a uh, is, is not necessarily profitable, right? We, we can't see these things as, as investments. We have to see them as, as being us being good stewards of our city and what kind of things can we do to keep people here and to draw people here. Yeah. Right. The statement I've made enough times that now it's a cliche, I'm afraid, but that nobody is drawn to a city because of its tax rate. Nobody chooses to live a place because they have low taxes. They choose a place because of the quality of life they can find there and a whole bunch of other stuff that often requires spending some money. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? doesn't have enough restaurants with 
we have plenty of restaurants, yeah. right? But we don't have enough with outside or outdoor eating. I would love, especially beautiful days like this one. Yeah. We're lucky to record on one of these, on one of the rare beautiful days we have in the panhandle where it's not blowing 30 miles mm-hmm. an hour. And on one of these days, oh, I, I love just sitting on a patio and munching on some chips and salsa and maybe a beer or two, yeah. Oh, we've got more than we used to. Right. We've, we've made progress. And I just, I wonder if, you know, how much of that is just a product of the, the weather and not yeah. knowing, okay, <laughs> let's put this patio in. We might be able to use it 30 to 60 days this year. Yes. Um, yeah. The rest of the days will be sunny but windy or whatever. What's the most underrated thing about living in Amarillo? That you can get anywhere within 10 to 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, whether you're on the far south side of town, you want to go downtown, you, know, you can hop on the loop or hop on I-27 and you're there within 15 minutes. If, if, if a Sod Boodles game starts at 7.05, you can leave home at 6.40. You'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Anytime I'm back in Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, you know, I just, I look at the traffic and I think as much as I love all the amenities here, it, it, it's going to take you an hour to get there. Yeah, yeah. There's a trade-off. Right. Okay. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Man, it used to be Urbana. I, I admittedly wrote... Probably twenty thousand words at this little corner table in Urbana. Okay, and and unfortunately they did not really survive the pandemic. So now it's it's Palace. I mean, there's luckily one, you know, just a few blocks down Thirty Fourth from where I live, and there's another one down on uh, on Georgia, close to my office. So I do love uh, as far as local coffee goes. I do love Palace. I'm a Starbucks guy. <laughs> we might have to edit that out. <laughs> You know, I think of that every time I drive down Coulter, you know, there's a Starbucks right across where the Urbana was. It, it makes me mad. It's not like there's a lack of desire for coffee, right, you right. know? You hate to see a chain thrive when there's, a locally owned place there didn't make it. There are two coffee shops over there. There's oh, yeah, Dutch there's a Dutch Bros. And yeah. there's Starbucks and where Urbana was. Yeah, That's sad. Okay, what's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? I follow so many of our local food trucks on, like, on Instagram. And I have to keep like a bib on so I don't drool over my phone and have mm-hmm. to take it to the phone medic. Uh, right now, I'm really loving uh, this food truck called Prissy's Barbecue. Okay. Uh, just a local barbecue food truck. They're posted up uh, on Donovan on Friday nights and just some of the best Southern Texas style barbecue I've ever had coming out of a food truck. It's fantastic. Okay. I've never had theirs before. By all means. Okay. What's your favorite local mural? Go Buffs, right? I'm, I'm WT proud uh my spouse and i both went to wt and there's the big buffalo right by the barfield inn okay that i just every time i see that i i was not visually artistically gifted i can barely draw stick figures my poor daughter wants me to draw like sidewalk chalk with her all the time i don't have that skill and seeing the murals here and that one in particular just puts me in awe of the of the ability of the people who do that that one's by blank spaces and one of the things I love about it is that they combined the realism of that buffalo with like some art deco elements in the background, yep. which is a really cool look. And they've they've repeated that sort of style in a couple of other murals. Uh, I think it's super cool. I love that visitors to the bar field see that yep. immediately when they get there. Okay, when was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? It's been too long. It's been too long. But like I said, I now have this three-year-old who I think would love to spray paint a car. Okay. So we will... Probably put that on our summer to-do list. Okay. That sounds fun. Yes. All right. Well, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close, Andrew, by asking my guests to endorse something. 
So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? The Amarillo Public Library. Okay. There are branches southwest side of town, downtown, northeast, northwest, wherever you are living in this town, there's one close by. They have incredibly helpful librarians. They have incredible story times for kids. Uh, we love going to the southwest branch on Monday mornings mm -hmm. for story time. I went to story time when I was a kid. We could record an entire episode of my thoughts on moral obligations of being a reader. Um, get to the library. Okay. 100%. Yeah. I agree. All right. Andrew Brandt, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank I appreciate you. it. And that concludes the episode. Thanks again to Andrew Brandt for the interview. You can learn more about his writing at writerbrandt.com or head to phonemedicofamarillotx.com to get your technology repaired. Thanks to Wick Realty, Shimon Dental, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring Hey Amarillo. And thanks to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, go review it. Leave a, a five-star rating and a, just a quick review uh, someplace like Apple Podcasts. That helps people find the show, and that's important as I continue to build an audience. Hey, Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you, so thanks for listening. And also the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey, Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Josh Wood, Corey Burns, Wes Reeves, Cindy Graham, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 304. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.